Our New Testament reading is taken from the book of Hebrews, chapter 2, verses 5 through 9. Now God did not subject the coming world, about which we are speaking, to angels. But someone has testified somewhere, What are humans that you are mindful of them, or mortals that you care for them? You have made them for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned them with glory and honor, subjecting all things under their feet. Now in subjecting all things to them, God left nothing outside their control. As it is, we do not yet see everything in subjection to them, but we do see Jesus, who for a little while was made lower than the angels, now crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. The word of the Lord. Our Old Testament reading today is Psalm chapter eight. O Lord, our sovereign, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouths of babes and infants, you have founded a bulwark because of your foes to silence the enemy and the avenger. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars that you have established, what are humans that you are mindful of them, mortals that you care for them? Yet you have made them a little lower than God and crowned them with glory and honor. You have given them dominion over the works of your hands and have put all things under their feet, all sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the air and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the sea. O Lord, our sovereign, how majestic is your name in all the earth. The word of the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Uh, we thank you that you have made yourself known to us in it. Um, you have uh, shown us your character. You have described um, the ways in which you are working within history to us. And we thank you for uh, the, your word made flesh, for your son, Jesus Christ, coming and uh, becoming a human being, uh, for living for a little while lower than the angels. And, um, and for coming to, to restore us, to redeem us, uh, to, to save us from our misery and our sin. And we pray that you would help us to see him, Holy Spirit. We pray that you would stir the affections of our hearts to love him. You'd, you'd open our eyes and our ears to see him, to hear him speaking to us in your word. And uh, we pray that you would be glorified, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, in our worship, in our awe, and in our love. And, and I pray that the meditations of my heart, and I pray that the words of my mouth, the meditations of our hearts, would be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. I always find the, the uh, New Testament passage to be comforting when the... the author of Hebrews writes, someone has testified somewhere, and then he quotes scripture. It should be a comfort to all of us. It's like, it's somewhere in the Bible, right? It's practically what he's saying. 
That was my first mini sermon. Now let's move on. Um, this Sunday is the first Sunday in Advent, right? Which is a, a season of a preparation for us. And what are we preparing for, you ask? Well, oddly enough, we are preparing for the birth of Jesus Christ, the Son of God incarnate. And I say that's odd because Jesus was born over 2,000 years ago. And how can we prepare for something that has happened in the past? Doesn't the very idea of preparation suggest some future event, right? You don't prepare for a test you took last year. You don't prepare a meal for guests who have already come and gone. So if we are preparing during the season of Advent, why are we preparing for something in the past? Are we preparing for something in the past or something in the future? Why do we prepare for the birth of Jesus Christ when it happened so long ago? Well, we prepare for the birth of Christ because we are reliving the drama of his life. In this moment, we are entering into the story of his life because as Christians, his life has become our life. And even though he was born thousands of years ago, Jesus is still alive and his birth as a baby, the incarnation of the Son of God as a human being has ongoing implications for our lives in the present. In the incarnation, the dignity of a fallen race was restored. God now existed and exists in the flesh. He did not become a plant or an animal. He did not become a puppy. He became a human being. And thereby he recalled and restored us out of our rebellion and out of our fear of death to be what we were intended to be. That was not an isolated event that happened 2,000 years ago, but an event with ongoing implications for our lives in the present. We prepare for the birth of Jesus Christ because the birth of Jesus Christ continues to influence the way we think of ourselves and our place in this world. Psalm 8 is a, a psalm of praise that was inspired by awe at the privileged position of humanity within God's vast creation. It opens and it closes with the same phrase, O Lord, our sovereign, how majestic is your name in all the earth. The psalmist bookends the psalm with this declaration saturated with praise and dripping with awe at the God who created and rules over creation as its sovereign, as its king. And in between these refrains of praise is the meditation that gave rise to them. The psalmist had been thinking about the world and he'd been thinking about humanity's place within it and his thoughts drove him to praise. Oh Lord, our sovereign, how majestic is your name in all the earth. And the thing he was meditating upon which gave rise to this praise was the reality that even though the universe is so vast and humanity so small, mere specks within the vast universe, yet God has chosen humanity to represent him and to rule over creation. Even then, within humanity, God has chosen the least likely people to make him known. At the end of verse one, the psalmist remarks that God has set his glory above the heavens 
but it's out of the mouths of babes and infants he has made himself known and silenced the enemies of God. Babes here refers to babies, not beautiful women or hunky men, right? The psalmist is classier than that. He's talking about children, right? And of course, we see God doing this very thing when Jesus rides into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday. There were crowds that welcomed him into the city by shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. And amongst the crowd were children who danced, who waved palm branches and shouted at the top of their tiny lungs. But in Matthew's gospel, we are told that when the chief priests and the scribes, the religious people, saw the amazing things that Jesus did, and they heard the children crying out in the temple, they became angry. And they said to Jesus, you hear what they're saying? To which Jesus replied, why, yes, I do. Have you never read the eighth Psalm? Out of the mouths of infants and nursing babies, you have prepared praise for yourself. And then the text tells us, he dropped his mic and he walked away. God chose to make his son known through the voices of children. They testified to the truth and their testimony Jesus used to silence the chief priests, the scribes who would have silenced the children. Their opposition to the testimony of this children proved their position as actually enemies of God, opponents to the son of God incarnate. It's deeply satisfying that God should use children in this way. And it's awesome that he likewise sets humanity as the rulers of his creation. Especially when you consider the celestial bodies, the moon and the stars and the sun. In verse three, the psalmist turns his eyes upward and he says, when I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars that you have established, what are human beings that you are mindful of them? mortals that you care for them. The celestial bodies are huge and unapproachable. They feel eternal almost. They've been here for millennia. In fact, the, the light that we see is the light that, that was given off hundreds, even millions of years ago. They're just so far away. It takes that much time for their light to reach us. In contrast, humanity is a, a vulnerable and fleeting species. I've always thought when comparing us even to the wild animals, that we are the more pathetic species, right? We can't be left outside because we die of exposure. We have no fur, or at least some of us have more than others. And we have no real natural way to defend ourselves. We can't even see in the dark. Our sense of smell is pretty weak. And when a deer gets tired, it just lays down and sleeps, but we need shelter. We need tempurpedic beds and we need heated blankets, right? a fleeting and vulnerable species we are, yet God cares for us. Knowing our needs, he supplies them. He gives us also much more than we need for he has assigned to us a great and serious responsibility. Humanity are his co-regents over earth. We are set above all creation as kings and queens to rule as representatives of the creator God. Psalm 8 enumerates all the creatures we are given to rule over. And this is what it means for humanity to be made in God's image. We are his representatives in the foreign land of earth. 
You know, in the ancient world, it was a common practice for a king to create this kind of larger-than-life statue of his likeness, of his, of his face, even his whole body, and to, to take these statues and to, to plant them in faraway lands that he had acquired possession of through his might. And it was that king's way of reminding this faraway people that though he is absent and removed from their faraway land, he remains their sovereign and their king. Don't forget it. It was a way of extending his, his influence and power. And Genesis is playing on this ancient practice when it says that humanity was created as God's image bearers. We're not statues, but living, breathing beings. And yet our purpose, our design was the same. Humanity was created to be an extension of God. We were to do his work on earth in his name and to increase his glory. Everything we did was to be for his sake. We weren't to worry about ourselves because look at the moon and the sun and the stars. He holds these things in place. If he's powerful enough to, to keep them spinning, then a, a meal three times a day should be no problem. The psalmist says in verse 5 that we were created a little lower than God. Vulnerable, vulnerable and fleeting, yet exalted and honored. It doesn't even say that we were made a little higher than the animals, but that we were created a little lower than God. He is our reference point, not the animals and the creation given to us to rule. The great Thomas Aquinas said that humanity was placed in a, a mediating position. We live with God and his angels above us and with the animals beneath us. We are therefore as Aquinas calls uh, us, a spirit body being. Angels have spirits, but no bodies, he writes. Animals have bodies, but no spirits. Man, however, has both a spirit and a body, and so comes between. He is midway on the scale of intelligent creation. In other words, we were created to occupy both worlds, a spiritual and a physical. We were created to commune with God and to commune with creation. Our work was to be a, a melding of the two worlds, to bring them together, to increase the footprint of God's kingdom in this foreign land and to honor him and to bring glory to him through the manner in which we ruled. In a sense, all of our work was to be sacrificial. You could, you could think of us as kings and queens, but you could also think of us as priests. And the structure of time that God instituted even encourages that self-understanding. Six, six days we were to do the work of reigning and ruling, but on the seventh we were to rest, presenting on that day our work to God our King and trusting Him to care for us as part of His creation. On that seventh day we were reminded of our animal-like status, despite the fact that we are the image bearers of God. On that seventh day, we weren't to work in order to be reminded that we are not self-sufficient or necessary beings. We are dependent, contingent beings who rely on God, who simply is, who simply needs nothing to provide us with our daily bread and the necessities of life. But in our work, in, in the pattern of this work, we began to be obsessed with, with profit and pleasure over praise. Our work was to be directed to God's glory. But eventually we stopped looking up to him. 
We stopped presenting ourselves and our work to him week in and week out. And instead, we looked down on creation and we asked ourselves, how can we make this stuff serve us? We were called by God to exercise dominion, but instead we have exercised domination. It was a rebellion, right? Placed by God in a foreign land to represent him, we forgot about this faraway ruler. And we began to pursue our own agenda, to press our own will on the creation, and the creation suffers mightily. Just ask Mr. Wendell Berry, right? In an article called Conservation is Good Work, Wendell Berry grieves the fact that the, the scale, the methods, the economy of American agriculture are all monstrously out of kilter with chemicals replacing the work and intelligence of people. But he writes that such a deformed agriculture is made necessary in the first place by the public's demand for a diet that it is at once cheap and luxurious, too cheap to support adequate agricultural communities or good agricultural methods or good maintenance of agricultural land, and yet so goofily self-indulgent as to demand in every season out-of-season foods produced by earth-destroying machines and chemicals. American agriculture is monstrously out of kilter, Barry says, and we are the monsters driving the recklessness. We want to be kings and queens, a people who can snap our fingers and get what we want at any time. But we don't want to be co-regents. We don't want to have to submit to a reality greater than us. We don't want to offer our work as sacrifice to another or to do his will over our own. We don't want to have to submit in our sin, that's an abhorrent thought. And yet, that's what we were created to do. We were created to bring life to this world through the wisdom of God and our own folly, we have brought death instead. And God warned humanity in Genesis 1 that we would die if we disobeyed him and prioritized our own pleasure or profit over humble acceptance of our position, exalted as it actually was within God's good creation. Right? In the story of Adam and Eve, they were said to notice two things about the fruit that grew on the forbidden tree. One, it was pleasing to the eyes. In other words, they thought it would bring them pleasure. Right? And two, it was good for food. It was edible and it would strengthen them. Eating it would benefit them. It would have brought glory to God had humanity at that point chosen obedience over their own profit and pleasure. But we rebelled against him. We, a rebellion we continue to this day when we choose pleasure and profit over praise that ascends to God through the proper use of his creation and our own bodies within it. Since that day, we have flirted with and courted death. We have put God in a bind. St. Athanasius in his book on the Incarnation explains this bind that we have put God into. He writes, it would of course have been unthinkable that God should go back upon his word and that man having transgressed should not die. But it was equally monstrous that beings which, which once had shared the nature of the word should perish and turn back again into non-existence through corruption. 
It was unworthy of the goodness of God that creatures made by him should be brought to nothing through the deceit wrought upon man by the devil. And it was supremely unfitting that the work of God and mankind should disappear, either through their own negligence or through the deceits of evil spirits. As then, the creatures whom he had created were reasonable, like the word, were in fact perishing, and such noble works were on the road to ruin, what was God being good to do? What was God to do? He had said we would die for our rebellion, and yet he had fashioned us in his image, an image that was badly marred by the fall, but not removed altogether. You see, the love and the justice of God had come into conflict. What was he to do? Well, Athanasius answers his own question. What else could he possibly do, he writes, but renew his image in mankind, so that through it, men might once more come to know him? And how could this be done except by the coming of the very image himself, our Savior Jesus Christ? Men could not have done it, for they are only made after the image. Nor could angels have done it, for they are not the images of God. The word of God came in his own person because it was he alone, the image of the Father, who could recreate men made after the image. The Son of God took on flesh and became a man in order to redeem humanity. As, Hebrew puts it, as Hebrews puts it, he became a little lower than the angels for a time. The Son of God took on a body for all of eternity and all of eternity in order to exalt humanity back to our rightful position within the order of creation. And he did this with his life. He lived a life of, of perfect obedience, despite experiencing great suffering and serious temptation. And he did this in his death by taking on himself the punishment that was due to us for our rebellion. He accomplished the restoration of humanity through his resurrection and his ascension as well. For he did not remain in the grave, but rose victorious over death. And in his resurrection and ascension, Jesus lifted humanity back to our rightful position as co-regents over creation. He has sat down at the right hand of God the Father, a human being enthroned over creation. And through us, he has resumed his work of extending his kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. My brothers and sisters, if you are children of the living God, if you have been given new life through faith in Christ, then you are being called to live in this world as his co-regents, his image bearers placed in a foreign land to do his will and not your own. It's not just the, the pastors and people in ministry who are doing God's work and fulfilling God's will for humanity. But the engineers, the accountants, the artists, the teachers, the farmers, the students, the mechanics, the builders, the electricians, even the pastors who are fulfilling through the redemption of God incarnate are calling in this world as co-regents and priests. Our work is his glory. And so we should look up as much as we look down. We should be as diligent about rest 
as we are about work. For in our rest, we are locating ourselves as creatures and not just kings and queens. God has made us a vulnerable and fleeting people in this great and vast world. And yet he cares for us. And yet he has assigned to us a great responsibility. We failed, but in Christ, we have been given a second chance, a new life to live in the rhythms of work and rest, labor and sacrifice in order to build the kingdom of God in this world for the increase of his glory and his beauty. What are human beings that you should be mindful of us, O Lord, that you became like us in order to save us from ourselves and from the fear of death and to restore us to our rightful place within creation? O Lord, our sovereign, how majestic is your name in all the earth. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.